Welcome to the Book Blast podcast, showcasing independent publishing in the UK and world writing in translation. Today, I'm interviewing Michelle Roberts, a preeminent Franco-British author of 12 highly acclaimed novels, including The Looking Glass and Daughters of the House, which won the WH Smith Literary Award and was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. She has also published poetry and short stories and is Emeritus Professor of Creative Writing at the University of East Anglia. She is a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and a member of Penn and of the Society of Authors. Negative Capability, A Diary of Surviving, is published today, 28th of May, by Sandstone Press. This interview was recorded by telephone on the eve of the COVID-19 lockdown. So welcome, Michelle. Um, You were born in 1949, 20 minutes after your twin sister Marguerite, to a French mother and an English father. How has being a twin affected your personality, your life? I think being a twin has affected it in a very positive way. When I think that I had nine months in the womb to get to know my sister, uh, non-verbally perhaps, but I imagine us as playing with each other and punching each other. We were not identical twins, so we were separated, if you like, by a, a thin skin. Once we were growing up as children, we were very, very close, partly because we were called the twins and dressed identically, even though we weren't identical, and partly because we shared a bedroom with my older sister and did a great deal together. So I could even read my sister's mind, and when we were both tiny, I could interpret her grunts and mutterings. I spoke before she did. She would quack, and I would know exactly what she needed. So that that kind of pre-linguistic closeness, I, I think, stood me in very good stead for getting to know other women later when I was making mm. friends with girls at school and then just women friends. There's a sense of it's normal to be very close to other women. It's lovely. Well, my older sister, Jackie, died Jackie. young, oh, aged um, 43. Yes, so Margie yes, is the I, only sister yes. I have now. What are your memories of growing up in Edgware in the 50s and 60s? And then you had you spent the summer holidays in Normandy with your grandparents. Tell us a bit about that. That was a sort of interesting juxtaposition. Well, we grew up in on the far edges of Edgware, which was quite a rural suburb, the bit where we lived. We started in a council house and then moved to a detached house. And Edgware touched on Scratchwoods and wildernesses, which is now where the M1 motorway begins. So Edgware afforded us a very free childhood. We could run out of the house and be in open countryside, farmland, woodland, and yet there was mm. a tube station that could take you into London. Mm-hmm. So the suburbs gave you the best of both worlds in that respect. Mm-hmm. In other ways, Edgware was you know, very genteel and uh, aspiring middle class and very dull, really. Any, any landscape of childhood is enchanted, I think, in that Wordsworthian way. Of, mm. It's where you have your first feelings and loves and hates. And then every summer we went to France, and that was like a second childhood, because the summer holidays felt very, very long. We were in Normandy, on near the Normandy coast, near Etretat, in a little, really tiny cottage with my grandparents and my mother's younger sister, my aunt, and the summer holidays were, were quite glorious in one way because they meant going swimming every day at Etretat and 
life, but this time a seaside life. We were very, very free as children. What I didn't like so much was being back in the little tiny French house and having to learn French manners, which were very rigid about meals and um, not speaking at table and eating correctly and all of that. That was tough. So, but how, how, what sort of books then? You had a mixture of books in your family home? Dad had a bookcase in the sitting room that I remember because I sat in front of it one day, aged about five, and realised suddenly that I could read. And mm. I, perhaps I was older than that, perhaps I was seven. I, I was slow to learn to read. Once I could open that bookcase, there were all my mother's books from when she'd been a student in France, um, studying English and French literature and studying to become a teacher of French. So the French classics were there. And then my dad, who was a working class boy and hadn't had really any secondary education to speak of because he'd been so ill as a child, but he was a self-taught man who was very keen on history and the great novels of his time. So I mean, I was reading Hornblower by C.S. Forrester mm. and I was reading André Gide. Mm. It was terrific fun. I mean, there was a bilingual cultural history in the house. So you and 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 then you ended up at Somerville College in Oxford. I studied English literature because mm-hmm. I wanted to become a writer mm-hmm. from the age of about five. Ah. I began first writing terribly okay. bad poetry. And I was a voracious reader, mm-hmm. and I read the novels of Dorothy Sayers, and I worked out that her heroine Harriet Vane had gone to Oxford and then become a writer. And I discovered that Dorothy Sayers herself had gone to Somerville and then became a writer. So with adolescent magical thinking, I thought, well, if I go to Somerville, perhaps I could become a writer. And I was, yeah, I was very encouraged by the nuns at my convent school to apply. And I think simply because I was such a passionate reader, I got in. I don't mm. really think I was particularly intelligent yeah. in, in a formal or intellectual way, but I could write about the poetry I loved. And I think that got me in. Well, passion is important. It is. You, but you had a Roman Catholic schooling, and then yes. you rebelled, and, in, and so, how, I mean, the, the nuns, were they very, very strict? And... Well, the thing is, the nuns who helped me get into Oxford were at my second convent school, oh. where I went to do my A-levels. Okay. The ones at the first convent school were very, very old-fashioned. They right. were very well-meaning, but very strict. In a, mm. They'd grown up in a very patriarchal church. Mm. Their job was to teach young women to hate themselves, to hate their bodies, to hate feelings, mm. not to trust themselves. I mean, it was a dreadful religious education. But mm. on the other hand, I was exposed to the glories and raptures of religious music and certain religious texts. I think, I think the rigidity and misogyny of the church helped turn me into a writer because I wanted to rebel against male priests in the pulpit ranting and raving about how awful we were as fallen people. And on the other hand, I knew that I had this fantastic literary and artistic tradition to draw on, the the whole of Catholic Western Europe, if you like. So that that mixture, that sort of conflict, helped turn me into a writer, I think. So who were your early formative influences as a writer? Well, there were so many. I mean, I have to say the Bible because because we read it as Mm -hmm. children. Mm -hmm. I, I I read all kinds of adventure novels. I emptied the public library. I, I read all the books in the junior library, so I was given adult tickets and set free in the adult library. So, for example, I read Lolita at the age of 10, oh, which was a bit young, I think, but it was incredibly thrilling and upsetting and made me 
huge adult world out there. But I was also reading Rosemary Sutcliffe's novels about the Roman legions in Britain. And I was reading science fiction. I was reading all the poetry I could lay my hands on. In my second conference school, where I was in the sixth form, I had a little band of girls. We were all nerds. We were absolutely hopeless at being feminine and pretty and appealing and all of that. We just sat around reading books and discussing them. And we read a lot of poetry. So I discovered John Donne. Mm. And I think he's been a major and everlasting influence ever mm. since. Mm. I discovered Gerard Manley Hopkins. They were the two great poets, I think, of my mm. adolescent years. Mm. And then a little bit later, I got into the French poets, I suppose, when I was about 17, 18. So I was reading... Baudelaire and uh, Verlaine and Mallarmé and Gautier and I mean all these late 19th, early 20th century poets. You wanted to be a writer. All this, all this passion and reading and well, first of all, you started writing. How did that all that evolve? That develop? Then you were first published by the Women's Press. Well, I suppose I've been writing ever since childhood. First of all, poetry. Then I went abroad because I knew I had to have a day job. I couldn't just be a writer. You had to earn a living. I'd actually trained postgraduate as a librarian. And I went abroad to Thailand and worked in Bangkok as the British Council's librarian. And that was an immensely interesting time because the Vietnam War was on. I was exposed to the effects of that war. I had very um, strong feelings about the war not being a good war. It radicalised me, I think. And when I came back to England, which I did quite abruptly because I realised I wasn't cut out to be a British Council librarian, I had lots of um, stuff in my head I wanted to sort out. And one was a story of origins about Catholicism and whether I would have become a nun or not. And the other was a story about imperialism, really. And I managed to combine the two into a novel. At the same time, I was very lucky. I got a job with Spare Rib as the feminist magazine, as their poetry editor. And through that, I met a band of women who wanted to write short stories. And we got together and formed a writer's group. So I had this lovely, very tough, fierce, critical group who were reading and writing and criticising each other. And we eventually published a volume of short stories called Tales I Tell My Mother. At the same time, I'd been writing my first novel, And I simply asked around and people said, oh, yes, there's this new press. They're looking for new fiction by new writers. So I sent my novel off and it was accepted and I was very, very happy. Wonderful. And that so that was the women's press and that's how you broke in. Then after a while you were published by Virago. I did two books with the Mm -hmm. women's press. And then I was, I suppose you'd have to call it, poached by a Methuen. There was a marvellous woman editor there called Elspeth Lindner mm-hmm. and she published I think two or three of my novels and then you know how things just change in the publishing mm-hmm. world I think Indeed. it was that she left to do other things and at that point Virago said let's talk oh. and so I did do then quite a few novels with Virago who then became part of Little Brown and I had a wonderful editor there Lenny Goodings yes. who, who was very good to me very very supportive um mm. And that was that was a very good time. So I've been very fortunate in the publishers I've been with, but mm. there have always come these moments when change has to happen. Both these presses, in their different ways, gave women writers a voice and had a huge impact on literary culture and attitudes to women. 
My first novel came out in 78, mm -hmm. and then I was publishing with Virago through the 80s. It was a very exciting mm -hmm. time because it was quite carnivalesque. The culture was very free and experimental mm -hmm. and people were going out and there was lots of theatre and pop-up theatre, pop-up mm -hmm. poetry mics. And, and young women were going out, you know, with their babies kind of tucked under one arm. It wasn't a culture where women were staying at home to mind the baby while the men did things. Yeah. The women went out with the children, and that was very free because Lovely. feminism was begun by young mothers, and people tend to forget that. It oh, was actually begun yeah. by women with children. I mean, the 70s, that was a period famous for embracing communal living, free love, socialist feminism. So that is interesting. So it was young mothers who started. Yes. So they were, we're not going to be stuck at home. We want to get That's out and right. see the world with our they baby. Want, I mean, excellent. And they wanted to work and to contribute mm, to society in a yeah. way that was kind of publicly valued. And they saw that, you know, that was going to be quite tough if mm -hmm. you were just staying at home all the time, being that ridiculous, perfect wife and mother. And it was out of those kinds of contradictions that the women's movement was born, as well as, you know, the equal pay strikes that were going on. And so the women's movement was a really dynamic and exciting and lovely place to be. People could dis-feminist, as, as of course they did, you know, mm. ugly, man-hating, hairy, mm. armpitted, <laughs> etc., etc. Yeah, was... But we were having a great deal of fun, as well as being very, very serious about... You know, mm. women who were on very low incomes, women mm. who were suffering domestic violence. You know, all of that was part of what we were all about. Mm. But mm. I was in a street theatre group, and mm -hmm. we made plays about those subjects. Mm -hmm. So we, we didn't feel that simply because some of us had had middle-class educations, that we couldn't make links with other groups of women in different circumstances. Indeed. You absolutely. know, we did really... Uh, all the groups, we mm -hmm. kind of quarrelled a lot sometimes, but we were connected, and I think mm -hmm. that's important as well. Yes, so that was then. Now, now, I mean, how, that was, what, 30... Oh, long, long time ago. <laughs> 30, 30, 40, anyway, that was a while ago. So now, of course, how feminism per se has evolved, or to what extent are changes reflected in the feminist literature published then and now? I mean, it's very different now. Well, how I think it's evolved we're in a moment when... A lot of young women now feel able to say they're feminists, mm -hmm. and I think that's great. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of feminism has become part of the sort of common sense of the culture, and that's great. Mm -hmm. And that means that a lot of um, publishers are publishing books that they might not have wanted to touch 20 years ago, yeah. but publishers, you know, having their eye on the ball and on the money, know that... Um, women authors do bring in the money. They may not get all the literary prizes. It may be the men who go on getting those some of the time. Mm. But women read a lot. Women are hungry for good books. Publishers are, are wanting good female authors, I think, as well as good male authors. Mm. I, I think it's great that Me Too exists, that the internet has enabled that connection between women. I mean, living in an age of the internet, has really changed feminism, I think. But I hope we will still have very practical, down-to-earth grassroots campaigns because we, we need those. I mean, I think it's not enough just to stand up and say, I have an identity and that's a feminist one. We, I really mm -hmm. want you know, there to be social changes and we need the women in Parliament and the, the women in the Labour Party to, to, to fight. Yes. And I think that's a very yeah, important 
Absolutely. And feminism. I don't think identity politics on its own is nearly enough. Mm. We've got to change things. In terms of your own writing, well, labels, of course, are used by the book trade because it helps where to put them in the bookshop <laughs> or for schools of thought or for people studying. But, I mean, are you, would you say you're a, you're a modernist, experimental, you're a feminist writer or a combination? I think I'm a combination. You're a combination. I think I'm a combination. And that's because (laughs) modernism is important to me, Mm -hmm. not as a specific moment in literary history so much, which Mm -hmm. you might say was the 20s, but as a way of writing. And it's about being attentive to how a book is made or how a novel is made Mm -hmm. and kind of why it's made. And that being part of the subject of the book, that's a bit high-flown and high-polluting. So an example in my own work would be I realised that I got deeply oppressed by the Bible, mm-hmm. so I rewrote it. So I took the New Testament and I added a gospel to it, the fifth gospel. And it. it's a secret gospel written by Mary Magdalene, hidden in a pot, lost in the sands of the desert, recently brought up to the light. And here it is, it's her first person account, her theology as a woman of what Christianity might become. And then I realised, I'd also felt oppressed by the Old Testament. So I rewrote that, but I took Mrs. Noah. I was very interested in pregnancy and how the ark is a symbol of a seed bobbing across the waters and out of destruction towards new life. And therefore, what was it like to be a pregnant woman? So I've got Mrs. Noah telling her version of life on the ark. And it's actually an ark full of female storytellers. And it's got this chap who comes on. He's called the gaffer. And it turns out he's God the Father. And he's written one book, which was a bestseller, called The Bible. But now he's got writer's block. So he jumps on board and he wants to join in the group of women writers. And they let him because although they're (laughs) socialist feminists, they're not um, so radical that they can't talk to a man about writing. So that's why I think I'm a modernist. But I'm also experimental because... Because anyway, that's what you do when you write a novel, I think. You're, you're testing out what you could do. What can the novel form do? Do you have to break it and go somewhere else with it? Mm. Or can you use traditional forms and somehow renew them? So, Mary Magdalene, where can you find her? What is that book called? It's called The Wild Girl. The Wild Girl. Must read that. Girl. Who published? Was that Virago? Or? That was Virago. That was Virago. It okay. came out in 1984. Okay. And then... When, and everyone, um, Mrs. Noah on the Ark with all the other ladies. Where, 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 yeah, where that's was that? called the Book of Mrs. Noah. The Book of Mrs. Noah, and that was and also I think Virago. That's like eighty-five. Yes, 85. that's Virago as well. Wonderful. For listeners, Sorry, for the listeners, they must. Those are definitely two must-reads. Well, I, I hope they've lasted. Mm. I think the Mary Magdalene one was written in a heat of passion. In a way, very naively, and maybe now I'm so much older, I couldn't have, I couldn't write it now. But I hope people might forgive me if it sounds a bit naive. Oh, it's yes. very impassioned. It, that's a bit. So one's different ages and phases of writing, and actually also different cultures. So because yes. you are absolutely steeped in two cultures, in French and British, and I mean that will have had a huge influence on many levels. How has that? Have they melded, or or, or can one see strands? I think perhaps they're somehow in conversation because, for example, the French writer Colette has been a major influence on me. And I think really she was the first French writer and perhaps even just writer whom I read who 
who managed to write as a woman while being simultaneously, you know, very intelligent, tip-top, top of the trees, proud of being a woman, writing as a woman. In her day, although there was a sort of sexed distinction between writers, which could be quite oppressive, I think Colette jumped over that, and mm-hmm. she she was proud of being a woman writer, and it was quite subversive to be a woman writer. Um, we're back in a terribly old-fashioned idea, which is horrible, of um, women writer equals feminine writer equals secondary and worse, mm-hmm. albeit you might make pots of money writing the kind of literature publishers think women want. But I love Colette because she's just terribly bold, and um, she's going to sock it to you about what women get up to and what women are like. And it's not beautiful or sentimental. It's truthful and raw, but very beautifully written. And I, I okay. hugely admire her. And Georges Sand. She's the other ah, great French avatar for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Because she was writing in the mid-19th century. And again, very courageously writing about women in an unconventional way. Putting women out into the world. Giving them power and um, having adventures and love and sex but also Mm. being rebels and revolutionaries she's a marvelous writer i mean so would you say there are core strands then or themes in your fiction it's about women getting out there in a sense well i suppose so yes i think i think because i started off as a a rebellious daughter Mm -hmm. of the catholic church and of my dear franco-english family I'm terribly interested in, I mean, I probably sound cliche to today's audience, but when I was beginning writing in the late 70s, the idea of telling women's stories from women's point of view, uncovering female truths, female feelings that hadn't been talked about much, Mm. felt really new. And I've gone on being interested in doing that, but never in sort of, I hope, too obvious a way. It's always trying to question things as well or turn Mm. things around or upside down or look at you know what is an unreliable narrator and what happens if a woman is telling lies you know i I don't want to write sentimentally about heroin so so how in then so so how do these women in your novels how do they come how do they come into being and then are there any you particularly like or particularly loathe? Or are they, are they all in certain somewhere in between? Or? Well, I suppose that they erupt from the unconscious, which mm, is a word I yes. still use. It's synonymous with the literary imagination or mm-hmm. the human imagination. And often they'll come in a dream, but not necessarily in the human form. It, it's usually an image of some kind that will start me off. Actually, very often a dead body. And somehow the dead body acquires an identity or a witness appears and a story begins to uncurl. It's like a tug on the earlobe. And sometimes that's matched by something in the external world, like I'll read um, a literary biography and think, ah, yes, I want to write a story about Colette or, ah, yes, I want to write a story about Georges Sand or I've written a story that features an amalgamated male character, a novel that features an amalgamated male character combining Mallarmé and Flaubert. And so it's about a novel begins somehow when I'm aware of a connection between some internal driven image Mm -hmm. and some external 
perhaps piece of art that I want to speak to, mm-hmm. or the image on its own will somehow precipitate a novel. It is hard to explain. No, Sounds no. quite mad. No, I know, so, no, well, there are, but creativity, it doesn't always immediately make sense. It's a sort of organic thing. Isn't it? That's it, right. It evolves. It's quite chaos. It's, it's quite it's, chaotic. It is order out of chaos. Yes. Yeah. You have to stay with it. Mm. You just have this strange yeah. feeling. It's a physical feeling, this tug on the earlobe mm. or a, mm. a twirling in the stomach. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got to just stay with that mm. and see what happens. So does, do you think psychoanalysis helps or hinders a writer if, if somebody has, had, has been psychoanalyzed or done a bit of that work? I did some psychotherapy in my mid-twenties when mm. I was going through a real crisis in my life about love and belonging and mm-hmm. wanting to write but being terrified, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> perhaps classic stuff, I don't mm-hmm. know. And I saw somebody who was very interested in writing and creativity and who encouraged me to write poetry and and work um, and who also very kindly read my second novel, which I had a lot of trouble with, and pointed out what was wrong with it. She just put her finger on something that I had repressed and she said, there's a gap here, there's something here. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was so helpful as literary criticism. So mm-hmm. for me, it was a beneficial experience because it's not about somebody telling you what to think or how to think or giving you any answers. A good therapist will help you free yourself to go into the unknown, to explore, to make experiments. And you're actually freeing yourself from old ways of thinking that might be trapped. Or you get stuck. Yes. yes. In your own cliché. In your own, in your own very... yeah, your own script running in your head kind of thing. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Daughters of the House. Now, that was shortlisted for the Booker in 92, and it won the W.H. Smith Literary Award in 93. That would have had quite an impact on your career, won't it? I mean, what, what was the impact? Well, the impact was really completely beneficial in that um, although I'd been... It's hard to talk about it without sounding like a show-off, you know. I had a certain presence in the literary world and my work was esteemed and I knew, I knew I had readers. But, of course, you get publicity if you're shortlisted for the booker. So mm. the more people read me than had read me before, and that was very nice. I was selling more books. Mm-hmm. I got That's a much good. bigger advance for my next novel. That was wonderful. And at parties, certain snooty literati <laughs> came up and talked to me, which they'd never bothered doing before. Well, that is what I love. Your, your, we're going to come to negative capability, which I love because you get a real mosaic of all kinds of levels of life and existence and ups and downs. And there's some wonderful bits in there about the whole literary life. For people who want to find out a bit about the literary life, I strongly recommend <laughs> reading Negative Capability. Anyway, uh, coming back to your the booker so success and failure so there's huge success and then because most writers with long careers have known both success and failure one would you know and so how important is it actually for a writer to experience those perhaps those extremes perhaps the vagaries of the writing life well I think I don't know whether it's important or not Mm. Georgia but I think it's inevitable so be prepared yeah yes Mm. and I think there's a kind of failure which you discover isn't a failure in that your first draft may be terrible, yeah. your second draft may be terrible. And it's like Samuel Beckett said, fail again, fail better. Fail better. So you yeah. keep rewriting mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. eventually make a novel that your publisher will publish. Mm-hmm. And then there's a sort of worse kind of failure when I had an agent. 
agent at one point who just said thumbs down to the Novelite Centre. And oh, that's not Lily the agent, away. is it? Lily the agent who features... That's Lily the agent. Oh, Lily the agent who's then, in... Yes. Oh, that, of course, is a pseudonym. Painful, um, yes, of course. I, want, I rather <laughs> wonder who she is. But anyway, yes, I because that... Oh, I, I winced. Yes, very... Because one has to be firm... Yeah, one has to be firm as an agent so your your writers don't delude themselves or develop yes. too much of a fantasy life. But yes. there's also, you don't want to be so tough that you crush them. So, no, and I know Lily seemed a bit crushing, really. That particular person wasn't famous for her interpersonal skills. <laughs> um, she was a very tough businesswoman. Well, and that's why yeah. we weren't really going to yeah. you know, make, okay. make a go of it. Mm-hmm. The agent I got now is <laughs> absolutely wonderful <laughs> well, uh, very truthful very honest mm. a person of complete integrity but kind that's a great quality that i value highly yes. i think in professional life it's just as valuable as in personal life uh, very much very much kindness well it's thinking of others compassion is that yes yes it is it is um so your th- 13 book that's impressive 14. oh it's 14 14 novels yes. and um Six collections of poetry, mm. I think four of short stories, and I've also made artist books wow. with an artist friend. So different forms and different genres. I, I really enjoy experimenting with new genres and forms very much. I think lots of writers do, actually. Yes, you are very versatile. But, I mean, do you have favourites out of, out of... I mean, are the particular personal favourite? Well, I, I do love writing poetry because mm-hmm. I started as that and it feels mm-hmm. it's an intense thing um i'm not saying i want to write flowery or decorative yeah. poetry mm-hmm. in terms of the language but it's something that feels sort of <laughs> it comes from somewhere quite deep and mm. you then translate that into the language in the world that you know is there waiting for you to play with it mm. at the moment i'm writing comedy for tv and that's completely different very difficult I may fail completely at it, but I'm having a go. So, but of these titles, I mean, are the popular, which are your most popular reading group titles? Or or are there some titles you'd like to be, you'd like to see picked up by reading groups? Lots of people read Daughters of the House because mm-hmm. it had been book of shortlisted. Yeah, of course. Um, I'd love people to tackle the one that came after it called Flesh and Blood, mm-hmm. which is very experimental, but I think if people stick with it, they could get a lot out of it. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of stories that are broken in two. And by reading the novel, the reader zips the stories back up together again and gets to the end and realises what, what a journey he or she's been on. And I do love that novel. I also love, I think perhaps we always love the most recent one. So I I love my most recent one, which is called The Woolworth Beauty. Mm-hmm. And it's about, partly about prostitution in 19th century London and Mayhew, the Victorian sociologist who was pursuing people in the underworld and trying oh, yes. to find out about their lives. lives it's also yeah. a ghost story set in the twentieth no, the twenty first century, about a haunted house. And I had a lot of fun writing and researching that. Is that you mentioned that in negative capability you you put the ghost story back in or you take it yes, out? That's Is it. that that's yes. The, yeah, that's yes, you mentioned that it was interesting, the whole process. Because you write every day, do you do lots of drugs? I mean it is a whole process of It is. No, adding, I do write subtracting every day. what I, works, I write that. mainly 
usually seven days a week. Mm-hmm. Although recently I've begun taking a bit more time off at weekends. But I think if you're an artist, I don't, I hope this doesn't sound too pretentious, but it's just about work. If you don't do the work, nothing happens. Yes. If you don't do the work, you don't get ideas because it's through working that you get ideas. You don't get them sitting about. You might get them in the swimming pool or walking, which I do. Yeah. But you you must mm. be there mm. doing mm. the work mm. <laughs> to mm. get the work Indeed. done. So Indeed. and I love it. So I'm very lucky. I'm doing work mm. I love. And are you working on something now? Well, I'm not going to start another novel for a bit. At the moment, I'm working on scripts for TV. So you said a, yes, a comedy series. So now, what is that? A comedy series? For, for yes, but I can't tell you what it's about because oh. it's under wraps. Oh, very exciting. <laughs> Comedy series. My goodness, that's brave, because writing comedy... I don't know, when you get old, perhaps you don't mind taking mm. risks and thinking, well, exactly. I've got nothing to lose now, really. Yeah, yeah. I might as well have a go at this. Mm. Now, your views on book publishing, because it's changed, the industry's changed an awful lot in in the span of the last, well, your career, last decades. View. I think one thing I've noticed is that Young writers are supposed to make a smash hit with their first book Mm. and then go on producing smash hits. Whereas I think in my generation, we were allowed a bit of slack to be nurtured along through an apprenticeship. Mm. Publishers were a bit more tolerant. Now Mm. they want every book to be a bestseller. And I think that's an enormous change and for the worse because a lot of very good writers get ignored or swept aside because they're not bestsellers. I think it's also tough on the young writers mm. because why should you make a big smash hit with your first book? That, that's your one and only chance somehow. So I think everything's got much, much more commercial. Mm. Yeah. On the other hand, there's all these little presses springing up, mm-hmm. which is terrific. And on the third hand, of course, there's um, self-publishing on the internet, which is a great thing. And uh, lots of people are doing that. So it's really swings and roundabouts, I think. Mm. Well, there's quite an amusing anecdote, again, in your negative capability, which is actually a diary, about you're in the LRB bookshop and everyone's a bit sniffy about self-publishing. And then, of course, it's, well, after all, what was Virginia Woolf and the Hogarth Press? Because that was all self-publishing them and their their circle of friends. So quite amusing. But, I mean, bookshops are now stocking self-published books so yeah uh, social media and the new digital opportunities offer all kinds of possibilities to writers i mean do, how how involved do you or do you not get involved in all of that i mean the time obviously is, is a factor or have you found it useful or in the end is it just exhausting and a drain i mean what's your take on on the social media and new digital opportunities i think for lots of writers social media works brilliantly mm-hmm. so that's great and good for them. And I think for lots of readers, perhaps, too, there are there are ways of um, finding out about authors mm-hmm. through social media mm-hmm. that obviously people really enjoy. For me, it doesn't work. If I've got something to say, I'll write a poem or a novel mm. or a letter to the newspaper or talk to a friend. I, I don't feel the need to put my opinions out there. I, I just don't. And I don't have the time. I'm amazed that people manage to live their lives when they're so heavily involved in social media. I like to have a lot of my time for, for daydreaming and going for walks and swimming and talking to my friends and seeing my friends, mm. cooking and gardening and painting. Mm. Um, I, I use email a great deal because that's crucial as a way of keeping in touch with people. But I don't, I'm not ruled by it. I 
look at it three times a day and the rest of the time it's turned off. So what, what, I mean, what tips, say five tips for young writers, what would you say? I think find a peer group of Mm -hmm. writers you respect and and let them both encourage and criticise you. Read an enormous amount. Be committed to your work, I think. And that's, Mm -hmm. of course, very tough, which is why you need the circle of writers, writer friends, whoever. Number four is, it's a lovely word, be bloody minded. And, and that for women is especially difficult, I think, because mm. we're brought up still to be nice and, and look after others. And, and you can feel astonishingly mm. selfish and aggressive mm. if you say the mornings are for me for my writing or yeah. the afternoons or whenever it is. But you've got to practice saying that or else you'll never get any work done. <laughs> and then number five, I'd say um, <laughs> tell people like me to, to piss off and not give you advice. <laughs> oh, so your latest book actually is a diary negative capabilities so how did that and it's set in different places so we move between london and le ciotat and there's uh paris with your friend and art exhibitions bonard at the musée d'orsay and stuff so wonderful pourri of observations and reflections on self and on writing and on also dealing with disappointment and shattered dreams it's very moving so how i mean how did all of that You've always kept diaries, because diaries are usually rather personal, not necessarily for publications. I've always kept some sort of a diary, but increasingly it's just a notebook filled with just images or fragments of conversation overheard in the street, or it's not a diary in any conventional sense. That one, I, the one I've published called Negative Capability, I wrote very deliberately as a diary, as a sort of therapeutic experiment because mm-hmm. I had a very frightening experience one night lying in bed where I felt I'd completely lost myself and shattered into bits didn't know who I was where I was what what night it was nothing at all I was just this mess of fragments it was very frightening something in me knew that if I could write about it I could perhaps try to pull these parts of me back together and rebuild myself so I just made a decision. That's what I'll do when I get up in the morning. Whoever I am at this moment, I don't know. I will start to write. And mm. so the next yeah. day I got up and said in my notebook, yesterday ended in disaster. And <laughs> I decided that although I did start to feel better quite quickly, because writing seems to be so healing for me as a way of, it's like a broken pot. You know, I was mm. this broken pot and I'm gluing it back together. I thought, well, I'll keep going because I might fall apart again. And Mm. I worked out the structure, which was to take a day each month that seemed worth writing about and write about everything that happened. And, of course, you can't. I mean, I was trying to do a female version of Nausgaard and other writers who Mm. try and put everything Mm. in. But I had to um, negotiate with my dear publishers who who said this will be rather a long book. (laughs) You know, you've got to cut it. Mm-hmm. And of course they were right. Mm-hmm. So I ended up editing it, but it is as true and honest as I could possibly make it at the time. Just about what it is to survive a, a catastrophe overnight and and learn from it, I suppose, mm-hmm. and then find out who you're going to be in the future. Because I think that's something that for me has happened all through my life, but I forget it will happen again and again. It's this idea of you're in a chrysalis mm-hmm. and you're, you you break out of it because you've got bigger and your case shatters but 
amazing. Oh, what a lovely I've image. that might happen. Yeah, amazing image. So I wish I'd put it in the book. I didn't mm. think of it. <laughs> It's you, talking to you that's no, done that's, it, Georgia. That's, one, that's, wonderful, that's a wonderful image. In the book, you you move back and forth, of course, between here and France, that you're being yes. bilingue, bilingue, biculturel. So have you always lived... I mean, has England England's always been your base, or you've had a base in France? I mean, you, one usually has, I suppose, a base, or have you lived equally between? Well, I've lived or, all over the place in London because mm-hmm. I was very poor for a long time, so I was living in communal houses mm-hmm. and I illegally subletted a flat at one point and I was living very hand-to-mouth for a very long time. Then with the Booker Prize shortlisting, I suddenly made some money and I bought a little house in France. Mm-hmm. I'd never owned property. I'd never even rented. Uh, I was so poor. But I suddenly, with the WH Smith Award, had £10,000 in my hand and I went to France and bought a house with it. Mm. And uh, in those days, in 93, you could buy a little house in France for 10,000 quid. So that became a base in France where I went with my then husband, who was a painter. We spent a lot of time there together. We also came back to London a lot because he had a a family he was still very close to and needed to see. So we began to just move between the two countries. And it really suited me because that's what I'd done as a child felt this lovely zigzag between England and France. Yes, that is something very familiar. Yes, absolutely. And when it doesn't, the zigzag doesn't quite happen anymore, you really miss it. France, European literature, translation. Why, in your view, is there still such reticence on the part of the dominant literary establishment, and let alone uh, the general cultural context in this country, in Britain, but that's something else. But there is, there's always been, and it's, there is better with the smaller presses, but there's reticence on the part of the dominant literary establishment to publish, review and promote literature in translation, despite the success of leading translation-only publishers like Maclehose Press, Pushkin Press, Fitzcarraldo Editions, and other smaller specialist presses. I mean, what in your view... Yeah. It's a very complicated question. I should have thought that mm. because ever since the Napoleonic Wars, <laughs> a lot of English people have felt that Europe and France is a kind of beloved enemy. Secondly, foreign languages, as they're called, haven't always been taught in schools, let alone the the literature of Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, Thirdly, bookshops. I think a great fault lies with bookshops because I've judged, for example, the Scott Moncrief Prize of French translation many times. We pick marvellous books and then they vanish. You don't see them in the bookshops. I'm yeah, very critical of um, mm. book selling and how that's organised. And it seems to me that at the most crude level, you could have a big table that just said current marvellous translations. Here they are in a pile. Mm. If, if, if people can't find them browsing, you maybe have got to put flags around. Yes, Eurovision Song Contest. Yes. Have a sort of Eurovision yes. book contest. Or maybe you've got to get, yeah. you know, very famous footballers suddenly saying... I don't only read Albert Camus, yes, La Peste. Indeed. I read contemporary novels too. Here's one I read yesterday. Mm. It's it's a great um, worry to me. It yeah. is. It is. Yes. It is I don't have answers really, no. but I think people like you, working as a translator, and people in pen, people talk about this issue all the time, don't they? But. Mm. If yeah. only booksellers would do more, it would help, I think. Certainly. And perhaps libraries as well. Yeah, libraries, but a lot of people indeed. don't go to bookshops. I know they don't. Do you have 
any favourite literary journals or bookish? Um, I'm devoted to the Times Literary Supplement. Mm-hmm. I think it's very good, mm-hmm. partly because it uses female writers and reviews works by women. It's done so more under its new editorship in the last few years, but and it's quite old-fashioned, which I also love. I mean, it's very serious. So it, it will review um, works in translation, for example. It, it will have a whole page on what's happening in German culture or French culture. And, and I I can't do without it, really. Mm. What else do I... I do read uh, the LRB um, more critically, perhaps um, <laughs> more ambivalently. Those are the two main ones. Oh, I read the Guardian Saturday Review because oh, yes. that reviews... Mm. New, new work review section yes we all yeah. are indeed so if you could go anywhere in time for one day where would you go and why oh I would go to Paris mm-hmm. and I would have lunch with Georges Sand and Gustave Flaubert and we'd have a very very good lunch and we would tease each other about literary fashion and be very loving and very bawdy and um, drink a lot of very good wine so would you, well, would you invite them to a party? Which people, living or dead, would you invite to a party? Or would it be some different guests? <laughs> well, Colette would have to come. Yes. She's terribly important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that great tradition of female writers that I cherished, all the women who were writing, you know, religious and lay poetry from the 12th century onwards, Marie de France, mm-hmm. Christine de Pizan, those Renaissance women poets, I'd have an enormous number of women from my literary tradition at my party. And all the men who've actually bothered reading us, they would be allowed to come to. <laughs> it's because you do mention, actually, in Negative Capability, a lack of women writers, though it's got better, but not enough, or in translation. Um, yes, that's right. That. I, I did notice when I was judging, mm. for yeah. example, the Scott Moncrief, that publishers were not submitting works by women. Mm. There are plenty of women translators, and that's really interesting. There are marvellous women translators, and the actual original works in French were often being submitted as they were works by men. And I don't know why that is. It's this unconscious Mm. bias, I think. But I think now things are getting better. Mm. Certain contemporary French female writers are getting published over here and Mm. actually reviewed in the mainstream press, like Leila Slimani, for example. Um, but it's interesting what you're saying because uh, 20 years ago when I was a publisher I published Annie Ernaud I published Gisèle Pinault I published all right. kinds of women in translation but then the reviewers that's the problem it comes to both the reviewers and the bookshops just yes. I think it's two is the bookshops certainly maybe there are issues there around bookselling but the reviewers also yes. foreign and I think Lena <sighs> Slimani that is an extraordinary book but it's very clever but it's the, the nanny the murderous nanny yes I mean, that's a huge subject and very clever. And it's, I mean, she's written other things, but that is what she's particularly known for, of course. Yes. And of course, that so, taps into bourgeois anxieties exactly. here. So that's why she's allowed to slip under the net, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. But I would actually blame the literary editors, you know, not the yeah. reviewers. The reviewers, the reviewers no, don't not, have yes, much of course. power. I take that back. Yes. So, but, so therefore, your heroines in fiction, let's hear, who are your heroines in fiction? Maybe a couple of heroines. I mean, I don't know how many heroines one has. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. I know that Charlotte Bronte has come under attack oh. in recent years oh. for perhaps 
um, the colonial aspects of Jane Eyre, but I do admire Jane Eyre as a character mm. because she's got that Protestant determination to do what's right, and she adheres to her inner conscience. So as a Catholic girl brought up to listen to male priests telling you what was what, the idea that you listen to your own conscience inside yourself appealed to me hugely, and I admire mm. Jane Eyre. She mm. is a, a great literary heroine. Oh, gosh. And then um, I love the way that um, Patricia Dunker, in her novel Sophie and the Sibyl, reimagined George Eliot and all the women disciples she had who adored her. So George Eliot, as, as a writer, is a heroine of mine, but George Eliot as a character in Patricia Dunker's very witty novel, Sophie and the Sibyl, um, is another heroine. So just wrapping up gently, uh, so what would you say, first of all, your chief characteristic and then your chief fault? <laughs> My chief characteristic, I think, is wanting a lot. <laughs> That's a very nice chief characteristic to have. <laughs> And my fault, it's it sort of double because it's on the one hand procrastination about tasks and on the connected, the opposite is over impatience. And do you have a motto or a saying or a mantra? La lutte continue. Thank you, Michelle, for a wonderful interview. Negative Capability, A Diary of Surviving is published by Sandstone Press and can be ordered from the publisher's website at sandstonepress.com.